You're listening. No. You're listening to the Buns.com Podcast Network. (laughs) (laughs) Buns, buns, buns. Hi, Joe's Nation. Steven here, and welcome to episode 11 of Sustainable Joe's 2084, the best place for business and sustainability talk out there. Now, before we get this episode going, I'm beyond excited to share the progress of our crowdfunding campaign for Sustainable Joe's Good Card Co., what we like to call Cards Done Right. Through six days, the impact supporters have made by purchasing our greeting cards is truly unbelievable. We've done the work, so all you have to do is make the choice. You can eliminate some of your holiday stress this year by buying your cards today. Remember, one card equals two trees and so much more. The link to our Indiegogo campaign is in the show notes and at sustainablejoes.com. Now, for those of you who have listened to our podcast journey from the beginning, you know we've been fortunate to talk with some incredible guests. From the treasurer of the Democratic National Committee, to the Water Brothers, to the Emmy Award-winning cast of Chasing Coral. Our guests have been nothing short of spectacular, sharing value-added content with us each and every week, and episode 11 is no exception. We recorded this episode live at our second live recording event in Toronto, Ontario, in front of a packed house, and you could seriously hear a pin drop during this conversation. Kurt Van Wallingham, the CEO of Hydrostore, is a man on a mission. In part one of this conversation, we talk about the future of energy, how Hydrostore went from near collapse to billions of dollars in their project pipeline, and the importance of finding the intersection between profit-driven business and purpose. As always, we will play a song from Wolf Saga in full at the end of this episode as Johnny donates his music for us to use in the podcast. Thank you, Johnny. This episode, again, was recorded live at Copower's downtown Toronto headquarters, and I want to say a quick thank you to Copower. Copower brings together the best of impact investing, clean energy, and fintech. They are an investment company that issues green bonds, but we're not talking about government bonds that pay 1% to 2%. Copower's five-year green bonds offer 5% annually while helping support the development of clean energy across North America. Think solar, geothermal, LED retrofits, projects that help fight climate change and that you'll feel good about investing in. Learn how you can put the planet in your portfolio by visiting copower.me. Now it's time for today's episode, part one of my conversation with the CEO of Hydrostore, Mr. Kurt Van Wallingham. To say I'm excited to share this with you is an enormous understatement. I hope you enjoy. Especially you, Chris Scott. Thanks for listening, Skippy. So the, the storage industry is just booming right now. And so we kind of say like uh, even the, the ugly kid at the dance will get a dance in this industry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I know but, what that felt like. <laughs> but but for us, like we we started marketing and going to the the conferences and, and reaching out to utilities in April, and our project pipelines in the billions of dollars now. From Sustainable Joe's, this is 2084, a podcast about designing tomorrow, creating a sustainable future for all, told by the people building it today. Ladies and gentlemen, might I present to you Mr. Curtis Van Wallingham, 
He is the CEO of HydroStore, which is a leader in the compressed air energy storage market. Uh, prior to HydroStore, you were the senior manager in uh, Deloitte's corporate strategy consulting practice, where you advised and consulted for some of the top energy companies globally. You have also held positions at nuclear generator Bruce Power and wind developer Environmental Electric Company. If you could please take a moment and fill in some of the gaps in that intro and, and let us know who you are in your, your personal life, where you come from, what you love, what you, what you stand for. So I was born in the 70s. <laughs> no. uh, I, I grew up in northwestern Ontario, a small logging town of uh, about 10,000 people, Kenora, and uh, moved to Toronto to play varsity hockey, do engineering, um, worked for a bit, did my MBA at Rotman as well, and then joined uh, Deloitte's Consulting, traveled the world, basically left every Sunday night, came back Friday night for almost 10 years and uh, would just work on big energy projects and then uh, joined Bruce Power doing business planning and strategy for them. And it's there that uh, I came across this guy that just filed some patents on compressed air. And so I quit my job, put a bunch of money in and uh, took a risk. All right, and we're gonna get to what that risk looks like in, in the real world momentarily. Uh, but I wanna jump to our discovery call for a moment. Uh, you were just putting your little one down for a nap. <laughs> when you think of the year 2084, when you think of your, your baby's future, what, what does that future look like? Well, first off, you know, if you think about fossil fuels and how much we've been burning, it's really just been happening in the last 50, 100 years, and it's really having an impact on the planet already. And so uh, that just can't continue. Um, in, in my mind, we'll be devastated if, if that does. And so if we get off fossil fuels, that means electrification of things. That means the grid has to get two to three times the size of it is today. And it has to go from five, 10% renewable to 100% renewable. So that is a massive lift that's trillions and trillions of dollars of capital. And so um, to me, that's a, that's a 50, 100 year transition. But um, that's, I think, what has to happen. We've got to move to electricity for almost everything but rocket ships. And it's got to happen fast and it's got to be renewable. And, and we'll, we'll get to rocket ships in a second, too, because one of your competitors, Mr. Elon Musk, wants to go to Mars, has a rocket ship company. You own a clean tech, green tech company called HydroStore. Can you explain to everyone what HydroStore does and give us a, a brief history of how the company came to be? Sure. So uh, what we create is kind of like a battery for the grid. You can think of it as, as a giant battery, but all we use is air, rock, and water. And so we effectively dig big holes or we sink balloons under oceans and lakes. Uh, we run compressors to suck atmospheric air, pressurize it, send it underwater where the water naturally keeps it pressurized. Therefore, you don't have to put it in steel pressure vessels. A, a thin fabric is all you need because the water keeps it in perfect balance. And then when you want electricity again, a valve opens, the air rushes up, reproduces power on demand, and now you have a battery that lasts 50 plus years, costs 20% of what lithium ion batteries cost and has no chemicals, disposal risk, anything like that. So that's uh, kind of what we do. How the genesis happened, the, the best form of energy storage today is pumped hydro, which is pump water up a hill, store it there at, at height. And in then a reservoir? In a reservoir, a higher lake or something. And then when you want electricity, let it fall again like a hydroelectric dam. 
And so my business partner, Cam Lewis, was thinking of that. And there's many reasons why I pumped hydros tough to do because you need two lakes with 200 feet height difference right beside one another. There's just not that many sites to do it. And he said, well, if I'm just lifting water in the air to store potential energy, can't I submerge air underwater and store it that way? And it's almost pumped hydro in reverse. And so that's where his kind of genesis came and uh, he filed some patents on it and uh, it's taken many twists and turns since then, but that was the genesis of the idea. And I was at Bruce Power looking to pump, to build pumped hydro for them, because as the Green Energy and Economy Act came in in Ontario, the nuclear units had to maneuver and they're not designed to do that. So they're just blowing, kind of wasting a lot of power and putting heat in the lake and everything else. And it was, it's not a good situation. So we were trying to build that, but there wasn't enough height differential and all that sort of stuff. And so I said, hey, maybe we could do that. And he goes, wow, my idea is actually just an idea on a napkin. We don't really have a product to <laughs> offer. So I said, well, let's create a business and, and make it one. I, I, I hear stories of like the best businesses back of a napkin. When you talk about the twists and turns that HydroStore has gone through, I mean, what, what are some of them and, and how has the market responded to your product? So we founded the company in 2010 and we officially were open for business only a couple months ago. So six, seven years of R&D and development. Where'd you find the money? Hold the phone. Um, friends and family early on, uh, and then we got backed by a venture capital fund uh, and, and an individual, Tom Rand, and uh, he still has that napkin, by the way. Really? That. Yes, he does. <laughs> um, and so we got some early funding, and I remember when, so Tom personally put some money in the company, and then his fund um, said, we'll back you under a condition. Show us someone will buy this, go bring us a commercial contract, and we'll give you your money. And we said, well, we have no money. We don't even have a product. How are we going to get that? Um, and you know, flew around the world, did a bunch of analysis. Next thing you know, six months later, I'm pretty much living down in Aruba, and we get a contract from the government of Aruba and their electrical utility to build it because they had a real problem. So I bring back a $7 million contract. I put it on his desk, and he's, okay, here's your money. And uh, that kind of got us rolling. We then got backed by some private equity groups and now some institutional investors. But uh, so... Getting the, the early money was very difficult. People thought we were crazy, and it gets slightly easier uh, as you accomplish some stuff. Well, what were kind of the levels, the thresholds that you went to in, or went through in raising capital? And what advice would you give other entrepreneurs who are, who are trying to introduce new tech into the market and, and obviously need capital? It's, you always need twice as much as what you think, and it's gonna be twice <laughs> as long. <laughs> that, that axiom really does hold. Um, but in the early days, it was, show me your putting skin in the game. So I would, I would have to match every time I brought an investor in or my parents or my brothers, uh, aunts and uncles would have to kind of match because they want to know that you had that skin in the game. So we use that to get grants. Next thing you know, then we've got millions of dollars of grant money committed to our project. And so we were able to use that to get investors to say, well, if you give us a million, we've got three million of grants to match with that. So now it's four million to spend. Isn't that kind of a good deal? And so then we'd get through that. And then ultimately you move on to the venture capitalists that are really looking about, can you make a business out of this? That's where the contract stuff starts coming in. And then and it just kind of keeps evolving from there. But in those early days, I mean, the main lesson I think is just that there's going to be so many twists and turns. You're going to want to pull your hair out. It's if you don't love what you're doing and you don't really believe in it, don't start. <laughs> and many times I've looked back and I've said, you know, if I knew what I did now, I never would have started the thing. It's, <laughs> I was just in so deep, I couldn't get out. 
uh, it just so happened I did, I did really believe in our, our product, our solution, and the industry that we we're in that um, we're able to stick it through. When you talk about you know, traveling around the world and then finally landing your first customer in Aruba, obviously you're introducing a new technology. You know, how are you able to change a customer's traditional mindset or that institutional mindset to adopt new tech? Really, really tough, especially utilities that are conservative kind of by nature. Yeah. And it just so happens though that as they see the world as well, that you gotta decarbonize. And so if you're gonna do that, we have to use renewables. They are very intermittent. We can only do a couple percent renewables without storage. Um, otherwise our grid is gonna start having blackouts and brownouts. So they see the imperative to adopt wind and solar. And then a necessary evil is you're gonna to have to bring some storage along with it. Uh, and so they were kind of forced into that. They weren't willing to stand up and say, we're not gonna do wind and solar. So they had to find a storage solution that worked. Ours is just so cost competitive or compelling cost vis-a-vis -vis batteries that a lot of them say, you know, I'll give it a shot for an order of magnitude lower cost. And for others who, you know, want to introduce that new tech, Again, what is that, 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 that lesson there? Is it just like you competed via cost? You competed via the, the future where the industry is going? You know, to accelerate the success rate for our listeners, what's your advice? You know, it's, it's a lot more than just cost. So what we did is um, we, had, we had choice. We could manufacture components and, and incrementally make it better. We said, no, let's stick with the big stuff from GE and Siemens because it comes with certain credibility and warranties. And it makes the problem slightly less complex to solve. You're not also manufacturing parts. Then we said, well, okay, what's gonna be their concern? Well, if they, we build a $100 million plant for you and, and we go out of business, you're stuck holding the bag. So we said, okay, now we need an engineering construction company to stand behind it. Spent two years bringing along and then ultimately a $25 billion company, AECOM, got behind our technology and said, okay, we will be the counterparty to the utilities, so we'll put our balance sheet on the line. And so we foresaw that the utilities would have a question and we went out to seek the partners to stand beside us to make that question go away. And so it was a series of smaller decisions like that, but I think you just have to be honest with yourself not drink your own Kool-Aid and say, yeah, I can do it all, da 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 da. <laughs> you, you need partners, you need help, there are gonna be concerns, and it's just, just get creative on how you address them. Hey Joe's Nation, I wanna take a minute to acknowledge a couple of our supporters, so please listen up. This episode of Sustainable Joe's 2084 is brought to you in part thanks to the support of Bullfrog Power, Buns, and Steam Whistle. Buns hosts our podcast for free. Steam Whistle gives us their delicious premium pilsner to sip on as we, as we converse. And Bullfrog not only financially supported our live events, but also powered them. And all of these entities push our content all over the internet. So let's get to the technical copy. First, to Bullfrog Power Sustainable Joe's 2084 live event recordings are Bullfrog powered with 100% green electricity. You too can choose green electricity for your home and support the development of community-based renewable energy projects across Canada at bullfrogpower.com. For those of you who don't know, Buns is the app for decluttering your life and finding stuff you love. Recently, Eli traded a bike light he no longer needed for three apples on Buns, quite literally a sweet trade. 
In the past, I also traded a six pack for two tickets to the Green Living Show. Anyways, you too can try trading today by visiting buns.com or get the app on your phone at the end of the day, buns, for trading. A big thank you also goes out to Steam Whistle, Canada's premium pilsner for their 100% renewably powered brewery to their grain bottles, which can be reused up to three times more than a standard brown bottle, quote end quote. Steam Whistle is proud to support Sustainable Joes as we work to create a sustainable tomorrow together. Lastly, this podcast is publicly funded. It takes hours to create, so thank you to all of our monthly Patreon campaign supporters. If you have the capacity to contribute or you would like your business to be highlighted, please send us a message at sustainablejoes.com. That's Joes with an S because whether you are a Joseph or Joanne, together we are a group of Joes. Now back to the show. How's the uptake on facilities or, or units actually being built and implemented because as you've said municipalities are starting to see the, the necessity to change well to give you a sense uh so the, the storage industry is just booming right now and so we kind of say like uh even the the ugly kid at the dance will get a dance in this industry um, <laughs> but i know but, what that felt like <laughs> but but for us like we we started marketing and going to the the conferences and, and reaching out to utilities in April and our project pipelines in the billions of dollars now. And so these utilities all come every time we speak to them and say something other than batteries. Thank you. These things cost an arm and a leg. They die in five or 10 years. Um, we need a better, different solution. And we have our drawbacks to us and there's some situations batteries are better, but they're just looking for a bit of diversity in how they address the storage issue. And there's frankly nothing else out there other than lithium ion batteries today. Um, you can do some thermal stuff like make blocks of ice and, and reduce your air conditioning requirements. But if you want electricity to electricity storage, uh, you're really stuck with the major lithium ion batteries, pumped hydro if you happen to have the sites, or us. And that's, that's kind of the way the industry looks right now from a bankable product that utilities can buy that comes warrantied. Now, I understand half of the global population lives within 60 kilometers, 35 miles of a coast. But you're limited, essentially, to coastal areas, are you not? Oh, no, no, no. Oh, here we go. Little nugget. So, little nugget. Yeah. Prove me wrong. So uh, we originally uh, were founded based on this marine design. And what we do is uh, we invented marine construction techniques where using a tugboat and an ROV, we could install football. Hold on, boat, ROV? Uh, underwater robot. Okay. Yeah, little remote control robot. We would sink massive structures with thousands of tons of weight, deep hundreds of meters under an ocean connected back to our plant, uh, and we could do it very cheaply. And so there we needed deep water near shore. Uh, and then uh, we came out last year and patented what we call our Terra solution, which is effectively dig out a hole in the ground anywhere and bring water to flood it. Uh, and then as you pump air, you lift that water up to kind of like a surface pond or a higher level in the underground structure. And now we can go anywhere. Um, it's just we, th that one has a little bit longer of a lead time because we have to mine out the hole in the ground, which is uh, to give you a sense, to store enough power for Toronto, the whole city of Toronto for an hour, uh, we would have to dig something out the size of a football field about seven or eight stories high. 400 meters underground and so um, 
that takes you know about a year of trucks down there just excavating and blowing stuff up and pulling it out and, and going and but it's still possible oh it's very possible and very cost effective so when you talk about being cost effective with a wry smile on your face, no less, <laughs> that's our big play. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the audience gets to see it. The, yeah. the listeners on the podcast don't necessarily get to see it. But you had alluded to earlier the fact that municipalities are like, finally something that's not a lithium ion battery. Is this you humbly saying like you can beat Elon Musk? <laughs> Like you have billions of dollars yeah. in the pipeline of projects already set up. That's right. He should just go to Mars right now. <laughs> uh, no, we are uh, like say a quarter of the capital cost to install and we last 50 plus years, use it as much as you want. And there's are maybe 10 years, four times the cost. So it's a pretty compelling it, it, difference on a, on a kind of a life cycle cost. The issue with ours is it, ours will take two years to build, he could have them up and running in three months. Um, when it comes to response time, we take 30 seconds to a minute and his is a millisecond. Um, and so there's clearly advantages to his when you need to uh, ramp on and off very, very quickly. Batteries are better suited. If you have an emergency and you need something brought in very quickly, they have a fit. Um, but if uh, there's a lot of other situations where ours is a better business proposition. I mean, in theory, batteries could simply be an ancillary solution to your product offering. Somewhat, um, we, can, we can almost do, because if you think of the grid, we've always needed what we call frequency regulation and voltage support to basically keep the lights and stop everything from tripping. That's what batteries are providing. But in the old days, gas plants provided that. And we use the same equipment as gas plants. We just send air through it instead of natural gas, burnt natural gas. So uh, we can do it, just batteries can do it a little better. So you need slightly fewer of them to do it. So when we think about the future of electricity, what's next? And when we talk about sustainability, what do everybody here in this room and everybody listening to the podcast need to know about the, the future of the energy sector? Um, so if I think about the electrical sector, like I I'd mentioned earlier, it's got to get a lot bigger, which means more transmission lines, uh, better use of the existing transmission lines, and then the costs, it's like every article I read, every stat I see, more than 50% of all new installed generation was wind or solar. And that number keeps creeping up. It's now 60, 70% in any month, almost any country you look at. So it is by far the most cost effective and it keep going down, whereas the other technologies keep going up. So in, I fast forward 10, 20 years, I can't see any, you're, you're gonna be doing solar probably offshore wind because people don't like the, the, the visual impact of onshore wind. Uh, and so I think most of our generation comes from those sources. Nuclear is just not competitive with renewables. Uh, and with a lot of intermittent renewables means you need a gob of storage to kind of go along with it. So I think every structure we see, every wall, every window, every road, every car, every structure that's not earth uh, will be a solar panel. And then offshore in the oceans will be gigantic 20, 50 megawatt turbines floating uh, with subsea cables coming back. And I think that's the energy of the future. Um, and then lots of storage, hopefully a lot of our stuff, a lot of batteries helping to balance it all, put at strategic locations so you need as few transmission lines as possible. That's, that's kind of what I see as the, the long-term future. And I forgot your second question. Second question had to deal with sustainability and the energy sector.
So coal is garbage. Coal is so polluting. Tell but, us how you really feel. But but <laughs> even worse than that, it's just it's just a crappy asset on the grid. It doesn't turn up, turn down well. It's just it's a dog of a product, and it's dirty, and it's not really even that cheap. So I, I just don't know why anyone would do it. Nuclear runs a similar parallel, does it not? It doesn't um, dial up or dial down. It very does easily. not dial up or dial down. Uh, Rather expensive. Yeah, but renewable at least. In some eyes, quote unquote, um, he did the it, quotes. Once you uh, deal with the waste issue, um, but so, can you really deal with the waste? That is my my firm position on nuclear. Yeah, I'm I'm probably in the same camp. Uh, natural gas transition fuel, but I was just in California talking to the utility executives, and the head of the California Commission stood up and said, "We won't be building another gas plant in this in the state." So, if you already have jurisdictions that are saying no gas, fast forward 20 years and I just can't see much more being built. Uh, it will be a transition for a lot of jurisdictions, but one day that will be tomorrow's coal. Uh, people will not want to burn. That was part one of my conversation with Kurt Van Wallingham, the CEO of HydroStore. You can find out more about HydroStore at hydrostore.ca. This episode was recorded by Koji Nagata and yours truly. I also took care of the editing and music was provided by Johnny of Wolfsaga. You can subscribe to 2084 on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do me a favor, like, like stop listening right now and leave a review while you're there. Technically pause listening because I want you to come back and listen to Johnny's song, okay? Lastly, big thank you to everyone who supports this project. Our patrons make this happen. Please, please, please check out our crowdfunding campaign for your personal and professional holiday cards this season. Again, we've done the work. We've vetted them. All you have to do is make the choice to have a positive impact. You can find the link in our show notes and at sustainablejoes.com. As always, thank you for listening. We will be live with a new episode next week. For now, I leave you with a track from Wolf Saga.
Sweet 